or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, there are two parts to this passage this morning. Each part focuses on a different group. First, in verses 1 through 4, we see unlikely allies. And then in 5 through 12, we see confused disciples. Those are our two sections this morning. Unlikely allies, confused disciples. As we look at these two groups today, here's what we're going to learn. This is the main idea for us today. The disposition of our hearts determines the decision of our faith. The disposition of our hearts determines the decision of our faith. In other words, to put it differently, what we believe about ourselves has everything to do with whether or not we believe in Jesus. The disposition of our hearts determines the decision of our faith. Let's see where we get this truth. Verses 1 through 4, unlikely allies. The passage begins this way in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. We'll stop there. We're so far removed from the historical context of first century Judaism that it's easy to miss this. But how would these phrases hit you today? How do these hit you this morning? And the Republicans and Democrats came. Or, and the Auburn fans and the Alabama fans came. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees were not friends. They were two different groups within Judaism who applied the Scripture in two very different ways. Now, we're more familiar with the Pharisees as Jesus' primary opponents. They were a larger group that was more popular with the people. The emphasis of the Pharisees was on purity. They were primarily concerned with keeping themselves pure through meticulous tradition that would guarantee that they had not made themselves unclean. These traditions formed a fence around the law. They fenced the law of God, and as long as you stayed within the fence, you were safe. So the Pharisees emphasized purity through keeping the law, and to put it in modern terminology, you could say that the Pharisees applied the Scriptures legalistically. The Pharisees applied the Scriptures by seeking to meticulously obey all of the commandments and keep themselves pure, adding tradition upon tradition to guarantee obedience. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they don't appear nearly as often, but we can gather a few things about them. They were a smaller and wealthier group. They were, had connections to the temple in Jerusalem, and their teaching was temple-focused. Unlike the Pharisees, they didn't adhere to traditions. They didn't, they didn't believe in the traditions of the elders. Instead, they, they focused merely on correct worship within the temple. They believed that, that the temple is the center of Jewish life, and, and everything else was not as big a deal as long as they worshipped correctly in the temple. And, and to put it in modern terminology, you could say that the Sadducees applied the Scriptures rather liberally. The Pharisees were very legalistic. The Sadducees were very liberal. They, 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 they were more licentious. They, they were more worldly than the Pharisees were. And yet, here they are, coming to Jesus together as one group, unlikely allies who have unified in their opposition against Jesus. Look back at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now what is going on with this request? I mean, had the Pharisees and Sadducees had their heads buried in the sand for the entirety of Jesus' ministry? 
Have they not heard about all the miracles that Jesus has performed? Why are they asking for a sign? Matthew tells us it was to test him, to test him. Despite everything that Jesus had done, the Pharisees and Sadducees decide they want more validation. And they demand that Jesus give an even greater demonstration of his divine power than he already has. This is kind of how I can be when it comes to admitting the greatness of LeBron James. I, I need to see more. And I will always need to see more. Well, Jesus won't have it. Look at how he responds in verses 2 and 3. He answered them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. First, Jesus, I think he's being somewhat tongue-in-cheek here. He compliments them on their ability to interpret the weather. He says, you know what a red sky means in the morning, and you know what a red sky means in the evening. You're, you're like the forerunners to James Spann himself. But then he makes his point, yet you cannot interpret the signs of the times, even though you claim to be experts in the scriptures. This is what you should be able to do, and you can't do this. This phrase, the signs of the times, isn't referring to the end times, at least not in the way that we generally think of them. The signs Jesus is referring to are his signs, his miracles that he's been doing throughout his ministry. And the times, what, what, what are the times that these signs refer to? The, the times of fulfillment, the time of all of God's promises to his people, from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Moses to David. His signs indicate that the time of fulfillment has arrived. And yet, the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they don't get it. In fact, Jesus says that they were unable to get it. You cannot interpret the signs of the times. What made them unable to interpret his miracles correctly? Why couldn't they get it? Look what Jesus says next in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The reason they couldn't interpret the signs of the times was because their hearts were evil and adulterous. This language doesn't mean that they were actual adulterers in their marriages. Jesus was accusing them of the same thing that God accused his people of through the prophet Hosea, forsaking him for other gods. They were spiritual adulterers before the Lord. Though the Pharisees sought to observe the law of God, though the Sadducees sought to observe correct worship in the temple of God, both groups had actually forsaken true worship of God in their hearts. This is why they couldn't interpret the signs they had already been given. And this is why they were demanding yet another sign from Jesus. Well, Jesus does promise to give them one sign. Look at verse 4 again. He says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. You remember the prophet Jonah. God called him to go to Nineveh, and he fled in the other direction. Though God didn't let him just run away. God God brought a storm on the boat. Jonah finally admitted, I'm the problem, throw me over. He's thrown overboard, and God causes a great fish to swallow him. And from the fish, Jonah thanks God for saving him, commits to going to Nineveh, and God causes the great fish to vomit Jonah up onto the shore. And from there, Jonah finally does obey, proclaims God's message of judgment to the Ninevites. And we know that Jonah's heart wasn't in it the way Jesus is. Jesus is the better Jonah. 
But what is he referring to when he says that this generation would be given the sign of Jonah? Well, if you turn back to Matthew 12, he has said this before. Look at Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40. It's not the first time that this has happened. Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40. Again, the scribes and Pharisees this time came, wishing to see a sign. And Jesus answered them, Matthew 12, 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When Jesus spoke of the sign of Jonah, it was a veiled reference to his own coming death and resurrection. His response to their demand for a sign was this, I'm going to be in the grave, and then I'm going to rise again. And that's what will vindicate my message. That's what will vindicate my ministry. Verse 5 simply tells us, So he left them and departed. One commentator notes that this is not just a geographical departure, but this is a judicial departure. In other words, this departure represents Jesus' response to their demand for a sign and their rejection of his ministry. And it serves as a warning today that those who persist in rejecting Christ will ultimately be rejected by Christ. Those who persist in rejecting Christ will ultimately be rejected by Christ. And before we move into the second group of the passage, I want to make one application specifically to those who may not believe in Jesus Christ this morning. According to Jesus in these verses, the reason that you don't believe is not because you need more evidence. It's because you have sinned against God. It's because you have an evil and adulterous heart. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. He rose again from the dead as a vindicating sign that tells us God has accepted that sacrifice for sins. And so I urge you this morning, confess your sins. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, I need to warn you that the opportunity to do that will not last forever. Just as Jesus left them and departed, you don't know when your current rejection of Christ might be your final rejection of Christ. But today, you're here, and you're hearing this message, and Christ is speaking to you through his word that he has died for sins, and he's risen again, and you can be saved by believing in him. And so before we move on, I urge you to call out to him even this morning, knowing that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't persist in rejecting him, demanding more. Understand that it is your evil heart that needs forgiveness and that Jesus has provided that forgiveness through his death on the cross. That's the first group in our passage this morning, unlikely allies. Now let's look at the second group, confused disciples, verses 5 through 12. Matthew begins this section with a little detail to set the stage in verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Have you ever forgotten to bring something important somewhere? Maybe you're supposed to bring food to a fellowship meal. Maybe tickets to Disney World. I've done that, kind of. Rings to a wedding? Hopefully not. Well, big or small, we've all been there, right? We, we, we've all had that moment where we were the ones that forgot something. In this instance, the disciples forgot their main source of nourishment for their journey. They forgot the bread. We don't know whose job it was to bring the bread, but someone dropped the ball. 
This sets the scene up. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. So Jesus, obviously on this journey, is reflecting back on this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees and them demanding a sign and their rejection of him. And on this reflection, he gives them this warning, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But here's what happens. The disciples who forgot to bring bread hear the word leaven from Jesus, and they immediately think he's rebuking them for forgetting the bread. They completely miss what he's actually saying because they're so preoccupied with the fact that they forgot to bring bread. And this is happening immediately after they've witnessed Jesus feed thousands of people with almost nothing on two separate occasions. Now, we might think Jesus could just laugh it off and say, guys, you're, you're just misunderstanding me. I'm not talking about bread. But Jesus sees in their confusion a much deeper problem. Look at what he says in verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? He's saying the reason that they're confused is because their faith is small. This is more than just a misunderstanding. This is more than just a miscommunication. No, there's a lack of belief happening. There's a small, weak faith that's not grasping what Jesus is teaching them. Well, what exactly were they struggling to believe? Look at verses 9 through 11. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Well, he's making two points here. First and most obviously, when you are with someone who has the power to create bread on demand, forgetting bread really isn't a big deal. If bread is the problem, Jesus can handle that. Yet even after seeing the miracles, the disciples incredibly still were struggling to trust that Jesus could provide for their needs. Just as an aside, I mean, we are like that, aren't we? Jesus has shown his faithfulness, shown his power over and over again, and we just forget. We just forget. And we start not believing and becoming scared and anxious about what's going to happen and we just forget who Jesus is and what he's done. But there's a deeper point Jesus is making than, than just, I, I can handle the bread. Notice he specifically reminds them of the 12 baskets that they gathered and the 7 baskets that they gathered. And if you were here for these sermons, you remember that those numbers were not random or insignificant. Taken together, they pointed to the reality that Jesus came for both Jew and Gentile, what Jesus is rebuking them for is not simply failing to remember that these feedings happened. He's rebuking them for failing to understand what the miracles signified. The, the, the miracles were not just raw displays of power with no meaning. No, they meant something. They signified something. They weren't about bread. They were about Christ's provision of salvation for all people. And he's saying, don't you perceive when I did those things, when you gathered those baskets, there was more going on than me just feeding 5,000 people and 4,000 people. Don't you realize that I'm teaching you something? And now this same unperceptive belief is on display as they fail to comprehend that Jesus is using the word leaven as a metaphor. They, 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 they can't even 
get their minds around that. And if we take a step back, we can notice a point of comparison between the Pharisees and Sadducees and the disciples. These two groups of people both were witnesses of Jesus' signs who failed to grasp the meaning of his signs. They both were there. They both know about these things, but they're both failing to interpret these things. This is why their confusion is such a big deal. They're displaying that same inability to understand that the religious leaders were. But of course, there's a big difference between these two groups, isn't there? Jesus said the Pharisees and Sadducees were an evil and adulterous generation. His disciples, he said, had little faith, but faith nonetheless. They were his people, his disciples, who had committed everything to follow him. And so Jesus doesn't leave them in this moment. There's a lot we can learn from this comparison, realizing that we have so much in common with the world. We share so much unbelief with the world. We have so much growth we need as his disciples, and yet Jesus does not leave us. Jesus does not give up on us. He continues to wisely teach us and mature us. And so in verse 12, he repeats the warning again in verse 11. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this time the disciples understand. Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They finally understood what Jesus meant. But I want to ask us, do, do we Do we understand the warning? Do we know what it means to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And now that we live in a day and age where there are no Pharisees and Sadducees, does this warning even matter anymore? Listen to what J.C. Ryle wrote about this warning. He said, The great physician would have us know that there will always be Pharisees and Sadducees in the ranks of Christians. Their succession shall never fail, Their generation shall never become extinct. Their name may change, but their spirit will always remain. Therefore, he cries to us, take heed and beware. Pharisees and Sadducees might not be around anymore, but the spirit of their teaching continues. And so we also need this warning. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's just think for the last few minutes this morning about those words, about this warning First, Matthew tells us that the disciples realized Jesus was not warning them about the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we need to notice that he doesn't say the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of the Sadducees, or even the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember, these two groups didn't teach the same thing. They, they taught different things, and yet there was a shared teaching that the disciples were to be aware of. There was, there was a common denominator in their teaching that we need to discover and that we need to be aware of in our own day. So what is that shared teaching that unified both groups that we need to be aware of? Well, there's another place in Matthew where we see the Pharisees and Sadducees appear together, and that was at John the Baptist's baptism in the wilderness. And when they came to him, John rebuked them, and his rebuke sheds light on what their mutual error was. Looking back at Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Matthew 3, verses 7 through 
But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What we need to see from John's rebuke of the Pharisees and Sadducees is what they were presuming about themselves. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. They were presuming on their heritage as the basis of their salvation. And this led to a system of teaching that emphasized external adherence to to what it meant to be an Israelite. Though they both taught different ways of living out that proper Judaism, their teaching came from this one mutual point of belief. We are already righteous before God. We already have a right standing before God. We're okay. And that's what they believe. They believe we are okay as long as we stay within the confines of what God has prescribed. Their teachings were different in the specifics, but they were same at the root. They both taught the people a doctrine of self-righteousness and self-justification. That you can be okay before the Lord as long as you do the right things. That's what they both taught. And Jesus calls this teaching leaven. He calls it leaven, which is a way to help us think about how this attitude affects our hearts, how this teaching affects our hearts. Just like a little bit of leaven works its way through the whole lump of dough. So the belief that we are righteous in and of ourselves, that we are okay, that we can just do the right things and justify ourselves, this belief will work its way throughout our whole heart. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are exhibit A to the disciples. Why did they reject Christ? Because they didn't believe they needed Christ. Their self-righteousness had permeated their hearts to the extent that they couldn't see any reason for a Savior. They believed that they were fine apart from Him, and so they refused to believe in Him. And Jesus calls us, beware of this leaven. Watch out. Be careful. Be wary of it. If we allow even a little bit of this self-justifying spirit to live in our hearts, Jesus says that it will spread into our entire heart and result in our rejection of His salvation. And here's why we need to hear this warning, not only because there are false teachers who commend self-righteousness to us, but even more because our hearts have a self-justifying bent. In other words, we naturally gravitate toward teaching that feeds our pride. We naturally gravitate toward teaching that supports the notion that we can achieve our own righteous standing. We want to hear that. There's a part of us that wants to hear that, and we need to beware not only of those who teach that, but also that our hearts want it. Well, how do we beware of this? How how can we watch out for this leaven of self-justification and self-righteousness? Only by remembering the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I believe this is why Jesus reminds the disciples of the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. This is, this is why they do understand the second time, because he, he's saying, think about what the miracles signified. Here's what they signified. They signified his all-sufficient sacrifice. 
We saw this, that when Jesus broke the bread, the, the, the language Matthew uses is the same language that he uses when Jesus breaks the bread in the upper room and gives it to the disciples and says, this is my body which is broken for you. It's, it's, it's the same exact language. The, the feeding of the 5,000 pointed to the fact that he was going to give himself for all people an all-sufficient sacrifice for Jews and Gentiles because we all need it. Because no one is excluded from our need for his sacrifice. And it's only when we are understanding his all-sufficient sacrifice, only when we're living in light of this truth, only living in light of the cross, that we can remember we are poor sinners and Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. Only the cross can tell us that. And only that can give us what we need to discern the doctrines of self-righteousness and to destroy the self-justifying tendencies of our own hearts. Only when we are remembering we need the cross. If we leave the cross behind, if we leave his sacrifice behind, if we, if we forget the cross, we're going to begin to believe that there's something good in us and that we're okay. But the cross destroys that lie. We need to live in light of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. Church, the spirit of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is alive and well today. It's, it's all around us. One example of this that I see is the increasing number of books geared toward women with this essential message. You are enough. There's tons of books like that right now written to ladies saying, you are enough. You're sufficient. Another example is our culture's insistence that the only real sin is not embracing who you are. And that's the whole point of Pride Month, isn't it? Just celebrate who you are. Celebrate yourself. Yet another example is this all-pervasive sense of superiority over those who disagree with us. No matter what you, where you land on any issue, we all have this tendency to believe I'm better than someone else. This stuff's all around us. This is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and these are anti-gospel doctrines. We are not enough. We have nothing to take pride in. We are superior to nobody. The disposition of our hearts determines the decision of our faith. What we believe about ourselves has everything to do with whether or not we believe in Jesus. If you believe that you're sufficient in yourself, if you believe that who you are is acceptable to God, if you believe that you're better than others, then you have no share in the Jesus who says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But this morning, if you are ready to embrace what Jesus says about you, that you are completely helpless, that you truly do have an evil heart left to yourself, and that you are no better than anybody else, then this morning receive the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. Call out to him, say, I'm completely poor in my spirit. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.